Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. And I am Lulu Kabu in studio with Anne Musa, Wisani Matebula and Figile Lingwati. Top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour. UN urges the DRC government to respect human rights. New report highlights strides made in the fight against HIV-AIDS and East African leaders set to sign monetary union agreement. In economic Zimbabwe could let foreign-owned mining firms to own majority shares. And in sports news, South African Sevens rugby team starts campaign on a winning note. But first the news with Anne Musa. Good morning. Malian soldiers have clashed with protesters who blocked a visit by the country's Prime Minister Umar Tatum to the northern rebel stronghold of Kidal. Meanwhile, Dutch Foreign Minister Frans Timmermans met with Mali's President Ibrahim Boubacar Keita yesterday to underline the Netherlands' commitment to help bolster the upcoming UN peacekeeping operation in the West African country. Timmermans and Keita met with the aides in the Malian capital, Bamako. Earlier this month, the Netherlands said it would send combat helicopters and around 380 troops to boost a UN-led peacekeeping mission trying to stabilize Mali after a coup and an Islamist incursion. The United Nations Children's Fund says mother-to-child transmission of the HIV virus have been dramatically reduced over the last seven years. UNICEF is, however, alarmed about the increasing HIV and AIDS rates among adolescents. The agency's 2013 stock-taking report on children and AIDS released today says AIDS-related deaths among those aged 10 to 19 increased between 2005 and 2012 from 71,000 to 110,000. Chief of Communications for UNICEF Africa Service Unit, Santha Blumen. 850,000 infants, babies, have been born without HIV since 2005. So the good news is that we are reaching more pregnant women that are living HIV positive, getting them diagnosed and getting them on treatment and helping them to prevent that infection passing to their child and also making sure that those mothers themselves are healthier and live longer so that they can raise their children. South Africa's Health Minister Aron Mutsuledi says half a million HIV-positive people in the country will from now on receive antiretroviral packaged and labelled with their names. He says they will no longer have to visit clinics to collect their drugs. Mutsuledi was responding to questions about the reported shortage of antiretrovirals in the country. He says they've put measures in place to minimise these shortages. Two weeks ago, we called all the pharmaceutical companies in the country. We are issuing a contract, starting with half a million people who are on ARVs. 
they no longer have to go to clinics and hospitals. They must choose an area, whether a private doctor or a pharmacist, etc., where they'll go and collect this ARV so that they are labeled with their names, they are packed right from the manufacturer directly to where the person wanted to receive them. They don't have to go to clinics where they'll get the stock out. It is one of the things that we are doing. Yemen has admitted being in violation of the International Mine Ban Treaty, which prohibits the use of stockpiling, production and transfer of landmines. The International Campaign to Ban Landmines, the ICBL, says forces loyal to the government of Yemen laid thousands of anti-personnel mines in 2011 in at least two locations, which resulted in at least 15 civilian casualties. The organization says this is the first confirmed use of landmines by a country, which is signatory to the Mine Ban Treaty. Editor of the Landmine Monitor Report, Mark Hasnay. Yemen in 2002 announced the destruction of its stockpiles and then destroyed an additional amount that were discovered in 2007. So theoretically, Yemen since 1999 should not be using anti-personnel mines and they shouldn't have any. We're hoping to receive some clarification on this situation from the government next week. And we're also looking for a strong response from states' parties to the convention about this situation. And finally, Islamic police in northern Nigeria's main city of Kanu have used an earth hewlage truck to destroy around 240,000 of bottles of beer. The beer was seized from supply vehicles and minority Christian shop owners. Alcohol is banned under Sharia law in Kanu and several other mostly Muslim northern states. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, and it's 8.06 Central African time, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. The United Nations mission in the Democratic Republic of Congo has called on the country's government to respect human rights while fighting against crime. The call follows allegations of executions by Congolese police during an operation to track gangsters known as Kuluna in the capital, Kinshasa. Jean-Noël Bamweze reports from Kinshasa. The street gangsters, well known as Kuluna here in Kinshasa, have been putting inhabitants of this country's capital city in trouble since a long time by robbing, injuring and even killing using machetes. The operation to track them is underway since more than a week, but there are allegations that once caught by police, Kuluna are being executed and both the UN Children Agency UNICEF and the UN Mission here MONUSCO are not happy of such a situation. They have said that more than 20 Kuluna have been killed. At a press conference here in Kinshasa, the UN Mission's spokesperson said these street gangsters are criminals but they have human rights and this operation must be done according to the law. Carlos Araujo. What MONUSCO and UNICEF are saying is that these operations have to be done according to the law. We have heard allegations about executions and we want the authorities to be aware of them and to investigate them. 
that the only thing that worries UNICEF and UNESCO is the violation of human rights in the context of this operation. There are human rights that have, everybody has a right to live. That's a basic human right, you know. Everything has to be done according to the law. They are criminals, but they have human rights too. If the government wants to contact MONUSCO to discuss ways of improving the situations in the terms of human rights, we are open to it. But fighting against criminality is not in the mandate of MONUSCO. The only thing we can do is when human rights are being violated, we should alert about this situation. But it's not in our mandate. But if the government wants to discuss how to minimize violations of human rights in this operation, MONUSCO and UNICEF are open to this. On the other side, the government here in the Democratic Republic of Congo has said it's not aware of any execution that has been made since the beginning of the operation. The government spokesperson Lambert Mendes said the government would like to get evidence of such executions to allow it to make important decisions in that way. Meanwhile, some of the Kinshasa inhabitants believe police have always been operating together with this Kuluna due to poor social conditions that the government should improve first. Kuluna always operates together with police. They share what they rob. So police must be killed as well. The government is responsible of this situation because social conditions are very poor. Kuluna rob attack people just to look for money because they are jobless. So the government must improve the social condition of Congolese. This three-month operation to track street gangsters known as Kuluna here in Kinshasa is going on until next February, according to the Congolese police service. Jean-Noël Bamweze, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. Activists across the world are calling for action against gender-based violence during the 16 days of activism against gender-based violence that started on Monday. A new comprehensive study carried out in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo has revealed that conflict contributes to increased levels of violence. Released by the non-governmental organization Sonke Gender Justice and Promundo, the study shows that the context of war causes high levels of trauma amongst men, which further exaggerates levels of violence in society. To find out more on this, Channel Africa's Khumutso Mopulane spoke to Dion Peacock, executive Director of Sonke Gender Justice. We work across Africa to promote gender equality um, and we conduct research as part of that work. We wanted to understand better what the reality was with regards to sexual violence and gender relations in the Eastern DRC. There's been a lot of talk about rape as a weapon of war in the Eastern DRC. So we conducted this research to really understand what was going on there. What were men's attitudes towards women? What were men and women's experiences with violence? And how might we use that information to promote gender equality and to try and prevent sexual and domestic violence in the DRC? We conducted that survey last year. This year, the theme of the 16 Days of Activism is really linking war Um, and militarism and the conflict that happens there that affects women to the conflict that happens in homes and that also obviously affects women. Some of the findings of this report found that the context of war was also found to have caused high levels of trauma amongst men, which then further exaggerates levels of violence in homes. If you can just perhaps break that down for us. 
Yeah, so we saw that both men and women had been exposed to incredibly high levels of violence. They'd both witnessed, experienced it, so it had been, um, you know, meted out onto their bodies. What we see is communities that have been deeply affected um, and devastated, really, by violence. What's interesting to note, though, is that that violence isn't just violence of war that the sexual and domestic violence that we were asking about, we learned is happening outside of the context of war. In other words, it's happening in families, men um, using violence against women at alarmingly high levels, and that that, we think, is something that has been a long-standing problem. So rape and domestic violence are not just weapons of war. They're not just problems that manifest in war. They're problems that deep-seated in society and that exist in families outside of war terms. Now, of course, that violence then gets ramped up and, as you said, almost exaggerated in a situation of war where people are not particularly concerned about the police or getting arrested and they are additionally traumatized by the war. One of the things that we see in the DRC, we see it here in South Africa, we see it all over the world, there's a very strong association between young men's exposure to violence, particularly in the home, and their subsequent use of violence. We've then got to put in place measures to help young people who've been exposed to violence understand that violence and recover from the trauma of that violence. Um, and if we can do that, we'd probably go a long way towards interrupting cycles of violence. Um, so here in South Africa, for instance, where young people are also exposed to a lot of violence, we really need to think about how we get support to young people in schools and in community settings. That was Dion Peacock, Executive Director of South African NGO Sonke Gender Justice, talking to Khomutso Mopulane. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. It's 8.13 Central African time and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Gender activists in Zimbabwe say a new breed of rapists has emerged in the country in the form of pastors. This was said during the launch of 16 days of activism against gender-based violence on Thursday in Harare. According to reports, more than 2,000 cases of rape are reported each year in the country, although less than half are prosecuted mainly due to corruption on the part of the Zimbabwe Republic Police. Simon Muchemwa has more. Delegates who spoke during the launch of this year's 16 Days of Activism Against Gender-Based Violence have declared war against religious groups who are fueling rape in Zimbabwe. The launch by women rights groups, the Zimbabwean government, in collaboration with the British Embassy, was done Thursday in Harare. The condemnation comes at a time when a pastor, Robert Martin Gumbura, was recently dragged to court facing more than 20 charges of rape. The end-time message church founder, Robert Gumbura, is alleged to have lured girls and married women to his church before raping them. The high court granted him bail early this week before he was rearrested on fresh rape charges. Sharon Ferro, Harare-based senior prosecutor, said Zimbabwe is experiencing a new breed of rapists being men of the cloth. But we also have a new breed which has recently emerged. We have pastors, some pastors. We have emerged as a new group that is perpetrating the offense of rape and sexual violence. Where pastors are supposed to preach and teach, it appears they are raping the congregants. That's why we have the courts 
and the po police officers inundated with cases of rape by these pastors. We have those as perpetrators of rape. Reverend Samuel Mutendi, son of founder of Zion Christian Church, said the Bible condemns rape. He bemoaned rape against girls and women perpetrated by pastors in churches around the country. The church which subscribes its faith to the almighty, to the, uh, to the almighty God who created the heavens and the earth, who created humankind in his image, who loved the world so much that he sacrificed his only son, Jesus Christ, for, for our salvation, does not condone rape and sexual violence against women and girls. Reverend Mutendi added that rape and sexual violence is an act of Satanism. The scourge uh, of gender violence perpetrated against women and girls in any form flies in the face of God's plans and good thoughts he wills for us. It is heinous, barbaric, savagery, and satanic. Meanwhile, Pastor Mujarirashe Mabugu of Glad Tiding said it is a shame that pastors are betraying the trust invested in them by the congregations. And so it's unfortunate that the church, instead of being a place of refuge, a place where people can go and find relief and assistance, counseling and prayer, and solutes for their souls, we are now manipulating people and abusing that platform and that space to, 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 to destroy the lives that, they would have, that, that God would have brought you know, for us to assist them, which is very unfortunate. He said, good Christians are law-abiding and always good citizens. Pastor Mabugu urged his fellow pastors in Zimbabwe to fear God and respect girls and women. Good Christian. Let me begin from there before we talk about apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists. We are all Christians to begin with. And so a good Christian is a good citizen. Meanwhile, Zimbabwe has been experiencing a sharp increase in the number of rape cases over the years. This resulted in the courts establishing 17 victim-friendly courts throughout the country to accommodate minors. This year alone, more than 1,000 cases have been tried in the courts, with more than 2,000 being withdrawn at the police stations due to corruption on the part of the police, lack of evidence, or withdrawals by the victims. Towards the end of each year, the world commemorates 16 days of activism against gender-based violence to remember victims of rape. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
On the eve of the 25th World AIDS Day on the 1st of December, yet another report has documented the strides made in recent years to stem the HIV epidemic. A report by the United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF, shows great progress made to prevent mother-to-child transmission of HIV with more than 850,000 new childhood infections averted between 2005 and 2012 in low-middle-income countries. For more on this report, Elizabeth Mapari spoke to Shanta Blumen, Chief of Communications for UNICEF's Africa Service Unit. Well, basically, you know, we're on the eve of World AIDS Day, and obviously this is the time to take stock of where we're at in terms of the fight against AIDS. And globally, UNICEF is obviously trying to make sure that children are not forgotten. So the report outlines the success and the challenges ahead for children in the larger fight against AIDS. Elaborate further, Shanta, on this progress that has been made in the area of preventing new HIV infections among infants. What is the success? Success largely credited to. What we've seen, which is good news, is a momentous shift in the last few years as countries have scaled up prevention of mother-to-child transmission. So this means that we estimate that 850,000 infants, babies, have been born without HIV since 2005. So the good news is that we are reaching more pregnant women that are living HIV positive, getting them diagnosed and getting them on treatment and helping them to prevent that infection passing to their child and also making sure that those mothers themselves are healthier and live longer so that they can raise their children. As we know, a decade ago, we were grappling with the scourge of huge numbers of orphans who were growing up alone simply also because their parents were also dying. So the good news is that more mothers are living and more children are being born negative. So that's a huge accomplishment. But I understand, though, that the report raises the alarm on adolescents. Why is this vulnerable group often left out of global and national efforts to address HIV and AIDS? Well, so what we've seen is that we've seen globally, on average, a reduction in adults that are dying from HIV and AIDS. And this is good news linked to the rollout of treatment. But we are seeing that adolescents, that teenagers are missing out and that more teenagers are now dying of AIDS than ever before. The rates are going up rather than decreasing. And in some ways that's in part because we have a generation of children that were born with HIV and that are living to their teenage years. Now the challenge is to keep them healthy and to make sure that they're accessing the right medicines. And there's been a lot of work done to improve pediatric treatment to treat children living with HIV, but there's still a lot of work done to treat adolescents. We're obviously you know, at a different stage of development and need their own special medications. Now, it is said that the world now has the experience and the tools to achieve an AIDS-free generation. What needs to happen from here going forward? Well, obviously, there's global deadlines and obviously we need to keep the momentum. We need to make sure that the right funding is available. We estimate that we need about $5.5 billion for adolescents to help those that are infected but also to scale up prevention programs. We need to keep the momentum around prevention of mother-to-child transmission. We need to make sure that the quality of services available for women is better, that more women have access to the new drug treatment regimes. So 
So it's taking stock of the success but being cognizant of the challenges. And money is an issue. We do need to make sure that we don't ignore HIV, AIDS in a world of austerity and competing health agendas. On Tuesday the 3rd, the Global Fund will have its pledging conference in Washington. So obviously it's critical that high-income countries recommit themselves to the momentum of taking HIV and AIDS seriously. That was Shanta Blumen, Chief of Communications for the Africa, African Service Unit at the UN Children's Fund, speaking to Elizabeth Mapari. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. It's 8.24 Central African Time, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. A call for stiffer penalties for those dealing in blood diamonds was made at a recent meeting of the Kimberley Process Certification Scheme. Delegates, however, failed to come up with a broader definition of the term blood diamond. Delegates from 81 countries which belong to the Kimberley Process Certification Scheme, KPCS, met for four days in Johannesburg to discuss proposals designed to give them more power to act against the sellers and recipients of so-called blood diamonds. Channel Africa's Ntlantla Masang. The Kimberley Process Certification Scheme was founded in South Africa in 2003 and put in place as a mechanism aimed at stemming the flow of rough diamonds used by rebel movements to finance conflicts. At a meeting held in Johannesburg last week, Delegates agreed to maintain the ban on diamond sales on the Central African Republic until the country proves its ability to prevent their usage in fueling conflicts. The meeting also mandated the KPCS to assist Ivory Coast in complying with its rules. More from outgoing KPCS Chairman Ambassador Weli Lintlapo. The decisions or some of the guidelines are going that are going to come out from the industry itself in relation to uh, import and exports of uh, and uh, processing of these uh, uh, diamonds. Also, civil society also landed their weight in exposing uh, some of the atrocities that were committed in the process uh, by the rebel movements that uh, occupied certain territories and together with their allies who supported them and uh, furnished them with uh, arms because it's a relationship between uh, those uh, conflicts and arms trafficking and exchange of illicit trade in diamonds uh, in the process. Uh, and then this was exposed uh, very extensively by uh, a civil society and it, and it does uh, constituted that. And then the same year, the United Nations General Assembly passed a resolution uh, that recognized the potential of the Kimberley process uh, in conflict pre- uh, prevention and called upon an establishment of a certification scheme that would allow for uh, diamonds that are being traded to be certified uh, by uh, through import and export so that uh, the end user can be able to be guaranteed that the diamonds that they are buying, the rings or anything that they buy that uh, decorated these diamonds are from diamonds which are not from conflict zones and not fueling conflict. Civil society representatives said the meeting provided a good platform for concerns to be raised. However, they expressed disappointment that the KPCS had not come up with a new definition of conflict or blood diamonds. They say this was necessary to capture the abuses that are ongoing in communities. More from human rights activist Sean Cleeton. 
First of all, we don't have a legal definition of a blood diamond, and uh, the Kimberley process has uh, defined a conflict diamond, which is a way of sanitizing the whole debate about blood diamonds and restricting it to the trade in rough diamonds. So a, a conflict diamond is, is defined as a, as a diamond, a rough diamond used by rebel groups to finance violence against legitimate government. But that leaves a whole swathe of diamonds out of the picture completely. And if we have cut and polished diamonds that are funding human rights violations, they are being traded worldwide and with the label of conflict-free. The World Diamond Council system of warranties, which is a bogus system in my opinion, uh, as it, it, it allows cut and polished diamonds that fund human rights violations to contaminate the global supply chain. What my concern is that the Kimberley process is, is a charade, in fact, because it is not guaranteeing the, the consumers that diamonds are conflict-free, and yet it is telling consumers that their diamonds are conflict-free. Mm-hmm. The term the term conflict-free doesn't appear anywhere in the Kimberley process regulations, and yet jewelers and the diamond industry are telling the public that current polished diamonds that they're buying are conflict-free based on the fact that the rough diamonds were sourced in areas free of conflict. But when these diamonds are going on to be cut and polished, and, and by the way, that's where most of the revenue from the diamond industry is generated, is generated further along the supply chain after sourcing. And then we find that governments like the government in Israel is generating a billion dollars per year for the Israeli military, according to Sher Heber, the Israeli economist. That the diamond industry in Israel is generating a billion dollars per year for the Israeli military, which stands accused of war crimes. So how can the public have confidence in the ethical provenance of any diamonds they buy? Armed steel activist Terry Crawford-Brown has challenged the KPCS to start acting more and talking less. The whole arrangement of the Kimberley process was an effort at damage control after the huge scandals of Sierra Leone and Angolan blood diamonds in the 1990s. And it was an attempt by the Beers in conjunction with the United Nations to lift the, 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 the image of diamonds as being associated with wars such as in Sierra Leone. Uh, prior to that, in the 1990s, the Beers had been buying about $500 million worth of diamonds from, from UNITA in Angola to fund the war there. And Sierra Leone was an ex- simply an extension of that history. Not in including rough diamonds, the Kimberley process sadly has degenerated into a path that refuses to deal with the, the abuse of human rights, whether in Zimbabwe or Angola or the DRC, and it says it doesn't deal in the issues of cut and polished diamonds, which is obviously, as, as Sean points out, where the, the value added comes from, and in which Israel is a prime player. So, as we know, the Beers has lost control over the diamond industry, which is held for over, over 100 years. Uh, the Oppenheimer family have sold their interest in the Beers because they see that the players now in the industry are much more ruthless than they were, and they're primarily Israelis who are involved in diamonds and then use the proceeds of that to fund the occupation of Palestine. South Africa now hands over the chair to the KPCS to China with effect from the 1st of January 2014. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Tlantla Mahlangu in Johannesburg. It's 8.31 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. And Musa standing by with the headlines.
Good morning. Airstrikes on Boko Haram camps in northeastern Nigeria said to have killed scores of insurgents in the latest operation aimed at crushing the four-year Islamist uprising. Yemen admits being in violation of the International Mine Ban Treaty, which prohibits the use of stockpiling, production and transfer of landmines. And UNICEF says mother-to-child transmission of HIV has been dramatically reduced over the last seven years. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. Five East African heads of state are expected to sign a new monetary union agreement, paving way for the establishment of a single currency in the region. According to the East African Legislative Assembly, the new currency, dubbed the East African Shilling, is expected to reduce the cost of doing business within the region by eliminating the use of different currencies across the border. From Nairobi, Mwaiki Konyo reports. The five presidents of the East African region are expected to sign a new East African Community Monetary Protocol during the Heads of State Summit in Nairobi, paving the way for the adoption of a new single currency in East Africa. The new single currency in East Africa comes at a time when trade volumes between Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, Rwanda and Burundi have been on an upward trend despite looming agreements between member countries on major infrastructure projects. The signing of the agreement also coincides with the commissioning of the new railway line that will link Kenya, Uganda, Rwanda and South Sudan. Addressing the second session of the East African Legislative Assembly in Nairobi, President Uru Kenyatta said the people of East Africa were interacting at such a rising rate and exchanging information, goods and services in such a growing volume that the borders have become mere formalities. I'm indeed happy and very excited that at the end of this month, the East African Community Monetary Union Protocol will be signed. In many ways, the Monetary Union is the logical culmination of integration efforts. All the things we seek in integration will be multiplied in the Monetary Union. We expect under the Union a strengthening of competition in respective domestic markets as well as the efficiencies arising out of greater economies of scale. And according to the latest report by the Society on International Development, the value of intra-regional trade in East Africa was valued at almost 5 billion U.S. dollars. A number of international companies from the U.S., Europe and the East are doing business across the East African region and also indigenous banks have become regional players. And according to the Speaker of the East African Legislative Assembly, Margaret Siswe, the new single currency in East Africa, dubbed the East African Shilling, will help in the harmonization of new physical and monetary policies leading to improved business among member countries. I'm excited by the plan to sign off the Monetary Union Protocol in the next two weeks by the summit of the EAC Heads of State. I, like many other East Africans and Yala inclusive, who finally hope that a single currency in the name of the East African shilling will be able to be in our pockets. And our forefathers will also be happy that we've been able to see the same light they were able to see. We also hope that uh, we shall have harmonized fiscal and monetary policies and we also hope that this will lead to bigger business among us 
the business community. According to analyst in Nairobi, the establishment of a single currency in East Africa will reduce the cost of a transacting business by eliminating use of different currencies in the region. President Uhuru Kenyatta again. Moreover, the cost of transacting in different currencies and the risks associated with adverse exchange rate movements in respect to intra-community trade will be eliminated. Besides widening trade opportunities within the community, the regional market will offer a stepping stone for local producers to access global markets. Globally, the East African Monetary Union will send a strong statement of our long-term commitment to deepen regional investment. But the signing of the new East African Monetary Agreement comes at a time when Tanzania complains of being isolated by Kenya, Uganda and Rwanda on infrastructure projects. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konya in Nairobi. It's 8.36 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Men and women in green who work tirelessly to protect and maintain the integrity of one of Africa's largest game reserves, the Kruger National Park, have been hailed for their persistence despite the harshness of their jobs. Anti-poaching efforts count very high amongst the long list of responsibilities of the rangers, but the increase cases of intrusions by rhino poachers has threatened the morale of these guardians. Rangers, however, say they have a clear understanding that they are the backbone of the Kruger Park and will work relentlessly to rid it of wildlife crime. Selina Dobong reports from the Kruger National Park. The front line of this battle for the survival of the rhino is being fought in the Kruger National Park, which is home to almost 80% of the world's population of that species. Game rangers are on the ground every hour of every day, often involved in deadly battles with poachers in the wildlife sanctuary. There has been an increasing number of shootouts between Kruger National Park rangers and the poachers. Some of these encounters end with the rangers being wounded or killed. The South African National Park's last acquired the services of retired Army Major General Johan Euster as part of his effort to fight rhino poaching in the park. General Euster has since introduced a more militarized strategy in combating poaching which rangers have had to adapt to. They say despite the strategy being different from the conventional methods and being more intense, there is no shortage of dedication and diligence amongst them. A ranger who spoke on the basis of anonymity explained, from from the very traditional conservationists, it didn't mean that uh, rangers were just looking at plants and, and so on. We still had law enforcement responsibility, even during the yesteryears. And rangers, from the perspective of being having the responsibility of law enforcement and working under this uh, adaptive management process, we had to adopt to the new situation. But of course, it had taken a little bit of some work in terms of retraining and training new field rangers to the level that will match the current situation, of which in, in simple terms is what we call paramilitary training. One thing that you know people should take note of is in organizations like this, people have got the same feeling like in a soccer team. In a soccer team, if you lose the game, it's not about an individual, it's about the team. So that spirit, it applies in the same way as us here. 
we feel strongly that uh, we own this place. We need to look after it. We know that uh, it can happen at, at one stage that one of us might uh, get killed. But I believe that uh, all of us are motivated that we will never give up. Not only is the Kruger National Park home to the largest population of rhinos in the world, this national park also remains the hardest hit by poaching. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Selina Ntobong at the Kruger National Park. German authorities have seized two batches of illegal timber from the Democratic Republic of Congo. The seizure is the strongest case of enforcement of a European Union law banning the trade in illegally sourced timber, which took effect in March this year. Daniela von Van Oyen, forest campaigner at Greenpeace Netherlands, says this action sends a strong signal to all loggers and their buyers in Europe to steer clear of dodgy business. She says her organization urged German authorities to conduct a full inquiry and not to let the companies involved off the hook. Yes, actually the forestry sector in Congo is in a state of organized chaos. There is no law enforcement, so companies don't abide by the law and they're not controlled, not in a way, in a credible way by the government. So it's a free-for-all in DRC. So what we say is, if you want to import timber from the DRC, it is very difficult, if not impossible, to comply with the European legislation that says that it's forbidden to import illegal wood. Because of the chaos in DRC, there is no independent system to verify the legality of wood, and therefore importers must not touch any wood in which they're not absolutely sure that it is legally harvested. Now, how does companies like the Lebanese-owned Bakri Boys Corporation being able to take timber from the DRC and export it to the European Union countries? Bakri Boys Corporation is the case we are dealing with now the wood that has been seized in Europe and Bakribo Corporation is logging under an illegal concession contract. So the recommendation is to cancel this contract because it's totally illegal under the Congolese law and we think that Bakribo is working under this contract to get around the social requirements it had agreed with the local communities. So it's not fulfilling these social requirements and it's hiding behind this new legal contract. So what we feel is necessary is that the government of Congo researches this case and follows the recommendations from the independent observer in Congo to cancel the concession contract. The German authorities are said to have seized two batches of illegal timber from the Democratic Republic of Congo. So what message does this send to companies like Bakri Boys Corporation who are operating illegally in the Democratic Republic of Congo? What has happened is that German authorities have seized the wood in Germany, two batches. One batch is still in the Czech Republic for processing. And the German authorities, they found out that all of the documentation that went with these laws was actually falsified and was fraudulent. So this is something the DRC government has to research and they have to prosecute the people involved in falsifying these documents for fraud. Because this is what you see in a country like Congo. You cannot trust government documents to prove the legality of the timber 
you need to do much more to verify if the timber was locked legally, because government documents alone will never be enough to comply to the European timber regulation. And this is also what the German authorities have told us, and they give the advice to companies that import wood from high-risk countries, high-risk for corruption countries like the Congo, they advise those companies to take much more measures than only depending on government documents because they can simply not be trusted. What the mechanism for verification of this timber if it is legal or not illegal timber? At this moment in Congo, there is no independent system with which you can verify legality of the timber. There is no tracking of the wood. It is credible. So as a timber importer, you cannot know. You cannot depend on the government of documents. You cannot depend on any independent verification system by a third party. So it's very difficult, if not impossible, for traders to buy timber from Congo and place it on the market in the EU if they want to comply with the EUCR. So this is something that companies you know, have to take into account and not touch any timber that looks dodgy. And obviously a lot has to do with how the government is not enforcing the law, how the government is in a sense uh, corrupted and a part of this big logging scam in Congo. So the government has to clean up its act in Congo. And until they do that and until the forests of Congo are not well protected and the people that live in the forests of Congo do not benefit from logging, the timber companies importing timber from Congo should really be aware now, how many companies would you say are operating in the forest in the Democratic Republic of Congo who are taking wood from their forests? There's actually dozens of industrial logging companies that operate in DRC under industrial logging permits and they export the timber to Europe but also definitely to China and even to the United States. So there's millions and millions of hectares under logging concessions and the volumes that are produced are not big if you compare to other Congo Basin countries. But there is no transparency at all in volumes that have been logged or exported. So it's difficult to give you the exact numbers of the exports and the amount of logging taking place. But surely there are European companies involved, there are Congolese companies, Lebanese financed companies involved in this logging and in the related trade to Europe and China. That was Daniele van Eugen, forest campaigner at Greenpeace Netherlands, on the line from Kinshasa in the DRC, talking to Wandile Kalipa. Now, we suddenly we touched on the fact that uh, um, Zimbabwe is going to be letting uh, mine, oh, mining rights owners mm. um, uh, own a majority shares, yeah. stake in their mines. Yeah. Now, moving to East Africa. Yes. The Monetary Union Agreement, launching on Monday. Yes, uh, they're launching on Monday. It has been uh, waited for for a long time. But also um, there's pros and cons. Uh, some analysts believe that, you know, they should have waited and see how the, and, and learn from the euro, how, how the euro is uh, doing right now mm-hmm. and what can they learn, learn from them and, you know, apply it uh, very well, not just you know going into it like they they're doing, but yeah. also it, it has been a long time. It has been muted for a long time, and yeah. I think it's about time that uh, they start it and make their own mistakes and 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 and, and do it. All right, great. Can you give us an update on the economics news? Thank you.
Good morning. Zimbabwe says it's willing to let uh, foreign-owned platinum mining firms own majority shares in their local operations if they build a refinery in the country. The country has the world's second largest platinum reserves, but mining companies send their raw product to South Africa for processing. President Robert Mugabe has already forced Anglo-American platinum and Impala platinum to agree to sell 51% of uh, shares to black investors. Mines Minister Waltachi Dakwa says if uh, platinum producers establish a refinery where the local mining chamber says it will cost at least $2 billion to build, the government could allow the mines to own more shares. Cashless uh, transactions in Africa are growing at a much faster rate and are said to be greater than North America and Europe combined. This image at the Africa Frontiers Forum held yesterday in Johannesburg. The forum highlighted uh, the adoption of technology in financial services is allowing the sector to leapfrog traditional infrastructure. Chief Executive of Frontier Advisory, Martin Davis. Cashless society effectively is giving people access to uh, or access to transactions, the ability to transact without often having, of course, unless being necessary safeguards, but not always being entirely reliant on traditional bricks and mortar infrastructure. And I think that has major implications, particularly from a rural economic perspective, where where typically banking institutions are unable to reach. And ultimately, this is about re- about distribution. So that's why the mobile telephony companies, companies like MTN, leading the way. Angola may announce a corporate tax cut uh, to 30% from 35% today to make uh, the country a more attractive destination for investment. The new tax level is a compromise between the government's desire to raise revenue and requests by the Association of Angolan Industry for a cut to 25%. Angola, which depends on oil production for almost all of, all of its uh, tax revenue, will also increase the withholding tax on public service contracts to 6.5% from 5.25% in most industries and from 3.5% in public construction industries. Meanwhile, South Africa's Department of Energy has restructured the, the method used to calculate margins in the petroleum sector. Changes in the regulatory accounting system will see margins regrouped based on who owns the assets in various value chains in the sector. Robert Marke is the director for fuel pricing and says that the move will help the investors to better understand their return on investment. You know that if you are going to invest in retail, what is the return in the retailing business? If you want to invest in the storage facilities, what is the return in the in the storage facilities? Unlike in the past where uh, the system that we're using, it will group all these activities under one item. Anyway, you're getting 15% return on, 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 the, the, on your on investment uh, as a whole without necessarily the different uh, you know, distribution or the different breakdowns that we are, we are bringing now. Bitpesa Limited, a Kenyan startup, will take on remittance providers like Western Union by using the Bitcoin virtual currency to cut transaction costs for Kenyans working abroad who send money home up to $1.2 billion a year. The online service plans to start on a trial basis by March next year after obtaining regulatory approval. The digital money gained uh, credibility this month after law enforcement and securities agencies said in U.S. Senate hearings that uh, bitcoins could be a legitimate means of exchange. Kenya is sub-Saharan Africa's third biggest recipient of remittances after Nigeria and Senegal, with more than 3 million people of uh, Kenyan origin living abroad.
financial indicators. The dollar at uh, 10.21 South African rands at 8.5 Botswana pulas and 5.47 Zambian kwachas. Also trading at 0.61 to the British pound at 0.73 to the euro. Then moving to commodities, gold $1,244, platinum $1,355 a fine ounce. The price of Brent crude oil at $111.77 per barrel. And that's your economics news. Thank you, Isani. Figure Lingwati is standing by with our sports update. Sports update this hour. South Africa have won the first match of Dubai League of the IRB 7 series. They beat Argentina 17 7, scoring three tries through Jamba Ulenga, Frankie Horn, and Chris Dry. Later today, they play matches against Russia and Samoa. Horn says he's happy they started with a good match because this is an important tournament for them to get the standings up again. Playing the first game in Dubai, and especially against Argentina, it's always scrappy. The first game is never a nice game. Uh, you just kind of have to get over that hurdle. And playing against Argentina, they, they always whip something new out of the bag. They like chip kicks. They like playing off the rocks. They, they like doing different things that you're not used to and out of, uh, out of character. So um, the guys manage well. We, we absorbed all the pressure, and we punished them for, 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 the, for the mistakes they made. So, yeah, it was a good game in the general sense of it. We got over the first hurdle, and, yeah, it's, it's great. And in football news, Ghana National Soccer side were crowned 2013 West African Football Union Cup champions. The home-based Black Stars beat Senegal 3-1 to leave the trophy at the Babayara Sports Stadium in Kumasi, Ghana on Thursday. Two goals from defender Kwabena Edusei and one from Latif Mohamed sealed Ghana's win. The Teranga Lions of Senegal got a consolation from captain Roger Gomez. Defending champion Togo won the third-place fixture after defeating Benin 2-1. And in cycling... The South African cycling team will be taking part in the African Cycling Championship in Egypt this weekend. South Africa is sending the biggest team ever for the championship. The team left on Thursday for Egypt to compete in the road race individual time trials for elite men, women, under 23 and junior riders. South Africa's women cyclist Ashley Mulman Pasio says she's looking at winning the double gold. 
So I'd like to take the double gold um, and also, of course, the, the points that are um, associated with the race are also very important, um, especially with next year being a Commonwealth Games year. Um, so, yeah, I'll be aiming for, for both wins. That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping the top stories in Africa, rise and shine at this hour, UN urges the DRC government to respect human rights. A new report highlights strides made in the fight against HIV-AIDS. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzura Magaza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Mafigizolo with happiness.